Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as you know, I'm not Paul Michael, and that's the only revelation I'm going to be doing today. Um, that's we've been walking through the book of Revelation, and, um, and so he called me Friday, and generally Paul Michael, he can stick, through, he can stick, stick it through you know, a little bit, but he, was, he sounded pretty rough, so he's like, I don't know if I can do it. And so uh, I told him, I got it. I'll uh, prepare something. And as I was kind of praying about, because, you know, it's always like, hey, you're on the spot. Let's go. Okay, so what do you want to do? And so I was just kind of praying about what the Lord wanted me to teach. And um, I, I have a service that is called ministrypass.com that just kind of helps you uh, have some outlines, some different themes, different ideas for that. And I came across one that just said the table. Hence, we're going to be talking about today a spot at the table. And so um, so part of this, what uh, this ministry pass does is really good. It actually helps out with context. It helps just kind of, doesn't, it doesn't, never gives any main points. Just say, hey, this is what this passage is talking about. And so today I got this series um, from this series. This is what this morning is going to be about. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start there. Then we'll go to Luke chapter 4. And then we're going to end in Luke chapter 5. 1 plus 4 equals 5. And so um, what uh, this morning... And then part of, the, you know, being, like, kind of rushed, from when I let my wife read what I had to say, and I don't know how to take what she said, because she's like, it reminds me of High School Musical. Um, and so if people aren't singing and dancing to a choreographed beat by the end of this, I don't think she got it right. Um, but, um, but this morning, uh, I, got, I came across to Luke. And Luke is really interesting, because it's a, one of the first biographies of Jesus' life, and now, I don't, when I say biography, I don't quite mean like modern biographies. Because there's a difference between what we call now, who really characterizes every single detail of a person's life. Whereas ancient biographies, they want to really, they'll do that, but they really use that as a way to tell a story. And so it would pick out particular moments and say, these are significant. And Luke does that, but he, more than any of the other writers, he says, I've got to go back to the start. Because I want to tell you, I want to make sure you know what you believe. And so he's writing Luke, and he actually writes Acts. So think Luke and Acts is one book. He's writing this to the emperor Theophilus. And so let's read the first four verses of Luke, this, this biography. So many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events in Luke chapter 1. It has been fulfilled among us. Luke chapter 1, verse 2. Just as the original eyewitnesses of servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. And so right at the beginning, you can kind of tell, you can already capture this, that Luke talks in very sophisticated language. All right, so some of the other writers, they do this, they're a little bit more normal in the way they word things, but Luke is a super smart guy. And so he's wording this, and so... Um, and, but if I could just summarize what Luke is hard about this whole gospel and, and Acts, is he basically, he says, I want to be as clear as possible because this is too good. It almost seems too good. Your Bibles are almost seem too good because um, you need to know the basis. And so what I want to do is I want to put something together so that way those and what we hand down to the next generation, they can know what they believe and why. And so Luke is very, very clear and precise in all of his story and tell. He didn't put a story in there just for fun. He put it in there to show who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And so today we're going to take one aspect of the stories that he tells. And often if you go through and look through Luke chapter in the Luke, you'll see 10 times that Jesus, I think it's 10, it might be 11, but you see 10 times where Luke or Jesus sits down with people around a table. 
Ten times. And so there are many things that can be strange about this book, but one thing that I don't think is strange for any of us is sitting around a table and eating. Amen. Yeah, you're right. And so for thousands of years, people have been gathering around tables. And when you're reading, just take notice how many often in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the biographies of Jesus, how many times Jesus is sitting at a table with people. And so, and I think about all the occasions that maybe we have gathered around people, right? Most of us eat three meals a day. I, only, I don't eat breakfast, so don't judge me. Um, I don't eat breakfast. So, but if you eat three meals a day, that's like a thousand and I didn't, I didn't go to math camp, so I don't know. Um, 1,095 meals. Okay, so 1,095 meals that we're eating in a course of a year if you eat three meals a day. And so maybe there's been some moments that you've been sitting around someone and you've talked to them and you've both just kind of thought, did we just become best friends? Yeah. Do you want to go do karate in the garage? Yeah. Um, but, or maybe, maybe you've had a romantic conversation, Right? And you just sit across that, you're one-on-one at dinner, and you're like, this is the person I'm going to marry. Or what about, maybe you've, you've had these conversations where someone just set you down and they told you some life-changing truth and your life has changed from that point on. Those happened to myself as well. What about those moments when you just gather around someone's table and all of a sudden you check your phone, it's past midnight, and, but you've just sent, you've gathered on a table just enjoying one another's company. So many different times, we gather around tables for different reasons. And Jesus has a lot of conversations around a table, and sometimes he sits with enemies. Sometimes he sits with friends. Sometimes he sits with people that are very different and people who are very similar to him. But what we see time and time again, this is the first thing I want you to see. Uh, uh, the growth guides are for next week because Paul Michael got sick. But if you have a piece of paper in your Bibles, you can write down, every time Jesus sits with someone, something life-changing happens. Every time Jesus sits with someone, something life-changing happens. Because there's something about his approach, if you look at the table, that is life-changing. And so as we jump into Luke chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 18. And there's one of two surprises in Luke and Acts. Because remember, Luke is writing this to Theophilus, the emperor. There's one of two surprises he really wants to nail down. The first one is this, that Jesus has died and rose again. Because Theophilus is looking and trying to understand what is this Christianity about? What is this way about? And he says, this is the first surprise, that Jesus died, he was buried, raised three days. That's why we read Acts chapter 10. And so he's risen. That's the first thing. That's the central heart of his letters to let you know. And then in Luke chapter 4, Jesus starts off. I think it's very, it's very cool. If you look at 16, I think your heading will say teaching ministry. Jesus, first and foremost, when he's outlining what he's going to do, he says, I'm going to reach people. And then he says in verse 18, he outlines it. I think he quotes Isaiah 65. He's going to outline for us what his ministry is going to look like in the next couple verses. That's John. That's the wrong one. That didn't look right. Luke chapter 5, starting, or Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 18 says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. This is Jesus. The spirit of the Lord is on me. And he's quoting Isaiah 61. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight of the blind, to set the free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is how Jesus introduces what he's doing. 
And what you're going to see in, in your, we didn't do a growth guide this week, but what I want you to do is read from Luke chapter 4, verse 18, all the way to our passage we're going to be at today. And use this as an outline. You're going to see Jesus preach good news to the poor. You're going to see Jesus release the captives. You're going to see the recovery of the blind. You're going to see the free be oppressed. You're going to, and then the Lord is coming. You're going to see that. So this week I want you to read Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 5. And this is how Jesus introduces everything he's going to do. And I want to focus on one little part of this in verse 18. Preach good news to the poor. Because the question we have to then ask, who are the poor? Right? We think of people who are poor who don't have money. That's the general definition of poor. And yet, for first century Jewish individuals, the poor means so much more than that. The poor is everyone who's downtrodden, everyone who lives their life on the margins. It's the, in the society, women were classified as poor. They, people with bad jobs were poor. People had jobs that no one else wanted uh, were poor. People that couldn't get by, who were struggling with everyday life, people who were rejected were classified as poor. And so Jesus says, I've come for those people to preach good news because they're the ones that need me. That's why I'm here. And he uses this word in Greek that I had to use a video to like play it, how I pronounce it. So I'm not even trying to pronounce it. It's the Greek word that's spelled P-T-O-C-H-O-S. P-T-O-C-H-O-S. Don't know how to pronounce it. Which means downtrodden. The people that feel like they're constantly being stepped on. And here's where I want you to move over to Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Just flip a page. Jesus has brought good news to the poor. He heals people that need healing. He is, he, that who have been considered poor. He releases people struggling from mental illness and being demon-possessed, people who have been considered part of the poor. He lifts up people on the fringe of the society. And then we get to our main guy today, Levi. And I think a question that we need to ask ourselves in this passage is, how does Levi fit into that group? Because Jesus came to do those things. He came to set the free oppressed. He came to preach good news to the poor, right? How does Levi fit into this? First of all, who is Levi? So look at verse 27, chapter 5. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And several, several times Jesus has an interaction with the tax collectors and Pharisees don't like them. And so like a lot of us kind of, I've heard this context before, but if you don't know about tax collecting, there's official taxes in which had to be drawn out that the Roman government required. And so uh, pretty much if you, have you ever been on toll road, we're from Missouri, so like coming down, you can come down 69, down interstate, go through Oklahoma, they have tolls the entire way. It's the worst road in the world. Okay. Um, but there was very detailed laws in which you, taxes you could be taxed for. And so you could walk down a, a particular road and someone could collect a tax from you. You walk down a bridge, you take the wrong exit, you get, you get a toll for it. And so now the Roman government, this was very, very, very beneath them. They were like, no, we don't want to worry about it. We'll take your money, but we're not going to worry about it. So we're going to pay people to do this. Those were your tax collectors. And so the people that did that, so my question, no question, is how can you guess, wait, how would you guess they were perceived by society around them? They were despised. Generally, these guys are the lowest of the low. The writer Joel B. Green, who wrote a commentary in the book, look, he says these guys are like snitches, all right? Snitches get stitches, okay? And that's, I thought that was funny in my head. Um, 
<laughs> Some people laughed, I guess. Okay, but, you know, so that's the, this is the idea. These people are the worst of the worst. They are the ones making money by overcharging people. And nobody wanted them around. They're not invited to nice dinner parties. They're not, they were not invited to good conversations on the table. But my question from all of this now, my third question I have, if Jesus says he's come for the downtrodden, is Levi really downtrodden? Was he really poor? Because chances are he's probably really rich. Or at least he's, he's doing pretty well for himself. Because he's probably making his money off of good, hardworking people. And Jesus is interested in him because he told him to come follow me. And so Levi, by nature, is probably one of the richer people in the area just based off the way that he can abuse the system. But when you look at this word downtrodden, that P-T-O-C-H-O-S word, which I just gave you, it has a sort of underlying meaning at heart that means the one who cowers, the one who crouches, the one who doesn't want to be observed, one who feels despised. All of that is the, this word for downtrodden, for poor. And so in the root of this word, and when you think about how society perceives Levi, maybe he does fit this definition then. S- someone who nobody wants to include. And we don't know anything about Levi's character, but that doesn't matter. Regardless if Levi was really good in character, meant well, or if he was really bad and did not mean well. He would be despised by everyone around him. Families would cut him off. And then which, which is what makes Jesus does next so fascinating. Jesus calls sinners to follow him. I think I have a point for you. Jesus calls, I put blank there for a reason. Because Jesus calls the poor. That's very clear here in this passage. He calls the blind, that's very clear. He calls the captive, he calls the oppressed, he calls the rich, he calls the powerful, he calls the weak, the young, the old, the simple, and the righteous. Regardless of who you are and where you've been, Jesus has called you into life with him. Come sit at a spot at the table if you believe in him and on his dying cross and accept his salvation, if you believe that. So regardless of who you are, your status, there's a spot at the table for you. Do you accept his gift? And so Levi, who probably is not poor, is poor in this word downtrodden because he's despised by all those around him. And Jesus comes right to him and says, follow me. Because Levi, this is what's crazy. Look at verse 27, back at 27 and 28. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. That's what we just read. Verse 28. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. And so in the moment, it seems like a really rash decision that Levi does. In a moment, he gets up, he leaves everything he's known, he leaves behind his income, his house, and all those different things. He says, I'm going to follow this rabbi who is wandering around teaching people. Because Levi knows this, and my my college professors are going to be mad at me for this, but if you don't understand anything about rabbinical culture, how they select students, basically in Jewish cultures, every boy was taught the scriptures up until I think 11 or 12. And then at 11 or 12, that is where a rabbi would find a student and he would go say, you're going to be my disciple, you're going to be my disciple, you're going to be my disciple. And so he would collect those he wants to follow, which is what you see Jesus doing throughout his ministry. He says, you're going to be my disciple. But if they weren't 
But if they weren't picked up by somebody, per se, that's when they went to go do the trade of their father, which is why Jesus became a carpenter. His dad was the one before him. And so that's what you see. If they didn't get picked up by, they didn't get drafted, they got put into the workforce. Okay, that's what they're, that's what's happening. And so, and Levi knows this. No one, no rabbi in the Jewish culture was going to pick him up. No one wanted him. Because he was unclean. He forsaked his family. He abandoned. He, pers- he pursued money instead of his people. And yet, here is Jesus. This guy who's becoming a celebrity in his local area, walking up to a tax booth who's not, who's not clean and saying, Levi, come follow me. You can be involved in what I'm doing. Yes, come learn from me, listen to my teaching, but actually watch what I'm doing. Watch how I act in the world around me. Take all of this in and then you go do it as well. Because that's what being a disciple is. It's not just learning and learning and learning. It's then taking what you're learning and go applying it and using it for the kingdom. And so this Levi character seems pretty intuitive because he's going to go and do just that. So what's the first thing that Levi Levi puts into practice once interacting with Jesus who said, come follow me? I want you to see this on the screen. The first thing he learned by watching him is that Jesus cares about the margins. He cares about the margins. Look at verse 29. Then Levi, so this is after he's been called to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. And now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with him. And so Jesus is interested in those who are on the fringes. He's interested in those who have been downtrodden, those who are the poor. And Jesus, and Levi has seen Jesus call him out of where he was at. And so he says, go do the same. So Levi is bringing in, and guess who he's bringing in? The other people who are downtrodden. The people he knows, which is who? The other tax collectors. The other people who despised and rejected. So he takes his circle of influence that God has given him. He takes a group that has influence over and he says, hey, I'm going to bring you into what Jesus is doing in my life. I want you to see and taste what I have seen in I want you to be a part of what Jesus is doing here on earth. And so Jesus, as king, has a kingdom. His influence is those who call out to him in faith. And when you think about it, kingdom is an area of influence in which you have. And so all of us has an area of influence, a circle of people around us that we have influence over. And so what Jesus is really doing at its heart is saying, I'm going to, when you take your area of influence away, you say, I'm going to take myself out of the center. I'm going to place Jesus right there. I don't want my influence to build up my own kingdom, I want to build up the king's kingdom. And so when Levi sits at this table, he says, I got some people who need this, who need to hear what the Lord has done in my life. Let me go get those tax collectors. And he copies what he'd seen Jesus do. And then look back at verse 29, 30. It says, then Jesus, I mean, then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them, verse 30. But shocking, but the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to the disciples. Why do you, that's Jesus, why do you, who's been kind of a celebrity at this point, who's been going around healing the captives, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? 
And anytime you see this word, this, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, or not tax collectors, the Pharisees and the scribes, it's mean people. Their job, their entire existence was to go through the detailed law of the Jewish people. And they had to get all the details out of it so make sure we didn't miss anything. Because it was a religion, so if they missed any law, they were standing before judgment of God. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they wanted to follow that as well as they possibly could so that they could be in right standing to God. So they're going to get at the very heart of the minute details so that they can, they can placate God, I guess. And so you might know people like this who really struggle with playing the things to a T, right? And I thought of the game Monopoly. I don't know why. I thought of the game Monopoly. Who's played Monopoly? Who gets super frustrated at Monopoly? Okay, you should get frustrated at Monopoly. And so I started thinking about this because there's some very detailed rules to Monopoly, especially if you don't understand it. But then I Googled it. There's actually so many rules in Monopoly that everyone just plays with that aren't actually rules in the game. And here's how I know, because I Googled it and I read the detailed list of it. So for example, you know how like there's a rule when you start, you have to take a lap first before you can start buying property? Not a rule in Monopoly. You know, the, you know when you pay your taxes? All right, the Romans collect your taxes, you put it in the middle, you land on free parking, you get this like lottery ticket, you get all that money? Not a rule, okay? Um, you can, in fact, because I think this is the way my, my siblings cheated me out of money, when you get thrown in jail, you can, in fact, earn money in there, okay? So people land on your property, you can do that. Um, also, all property must sell. So if you don't buy that, it goes to the auction, okay? So there's so many rules that we have added onto Monopoly that aren't actually there. But, you know, who wants to read the instructions? These scribes would. They want to get to the heart of what's going on. They want to know. And so why does Jesus care about these? And the question I have for us is, why are they so upset with Jesus? Why? What about this process that Jesus is eating with people why does it bother them? Why does simply sitting and having a meal with someone bother them so much? And here's something I want you to write down. To really understand this, we have to understand how important a meal to an Eastern culture was. And on the screen, it's going to say, sharing a meal was to have fellowship and intimacy with someone. To have intimacy and fellowship. To be involved in what they were doing. And they involved with you. And so you were connected on some level if you share a table with somebody, and that meant something. And so it's important to understand when Jesus sits at the table, another instance, the Last Supper, when he sits at a table with all his disciples, who he had called out said, I want you to come follow me. And he says, I've called you, but one of you is going to betray me. This to Eastern thinkers is just going to like crawl underneath their skins. Like, how in the world could you betray someone that you've ate with? How in the world can you invite someone up to your house and you just betray them? This, this would just shock and dis disbelief over this idea. Because you've shared intimacy with them. You've had fellowship with them. How can you turn around and get rid of them? Are you kidding me? That's what's happening. And so having a meal with someone meant something. And because to them, there's something sacred about the act of sharing food together that was ingrained in society. So when we read that Jesus is pulling in some of these tax collectors, these sinners, 
that are on the outside, eating with tax collectors and sinners, eating with the lowly of society, eating with them. They're questioning. So you're saying these people aren't included to what God is doing? How can that be? And yet, look at verse 31. This is his response. Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus' response is, I'm for those on the edge, those who are hurting, those who are on the fringe, those who have never been thought to include, for those who have never gotten an invite, for those who didn't wake up early, for those who felt like they, could, they got left behind, those who, who fall out, those who sort of life is passing them by. I came for those people. And so I talked to you about the first surprise that Luke has in, in, for Theophilus is that Jesus died and rose again. The second thing was to understand this, the biggest surprise is Jesus would start to include the outsiders. Jesus started including the outsider. Never before was that happening. And this didn't stop with Jesus. This happened with his followers. They would continue this tradition. After his going, after he died, rose again, he spent 40 days with his disciples. He went to the mountain. He was ascended into heaven where he sat at the right hand of the Father. After he left, disciples did this even more. And I had Lane read Acts chapter 10 because you're going to see something in Acts chapter 10. It said, he's talking about when Peter in verse 47, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized? He was talking about the outsiders. Because there was people in his church who felt like they didn't belong here. And he's saying the same spirit that fell on us is falling on them. How can anyone stop that? How can anyone stop a non-Jewish people that have been believed in Jesus and they have experienced what God has done and they've been transformed? How can anyone stop that? He goes on to say, how do we, how do we show that then? We baptize them. If you put your faith in Jesus and have never been baptized, I pray that you step out in faith. It's the visible sign that you've been engrafted into the invisible church. And there's this moment that they're like, the outsiders have been brought in. What can we do to stand in the way? So God has said he's bringing in these people from the margins. So they've opened up the floodgates. And the whole thing changes from a moment. That's what the whole story of Acts is. It's changing. It's rapidly moving. It starts with the outsiders of Jewish people, the downtrodden, the poor, the people that aren't included. It expands to the people that aren't even Jewish. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the table expands and expands and expands. And there's a spot available for all who call out to the Father. And what we see in this group of outsiders, as God acknowledges that they are accepted and included by the whole, they're given the Holy Spirit as a deposit to the inheritance that's waiting for them. Because before Jesus, there was no inheritance waiting for them if they weren't Jewish. Jesus come and I have broken down the barriers. Come sit at my table. He's coming. There's a moment when you accept Jesus, when he comes to dwell inside, he gives your spirit to act. And it's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you and is shown in baptism. But there's something else going on. It started with the spirit. It happened through the spirit. It was shown through baptism, but it all started at a table. It started at a table where Jesus sat with someone on the fringes, an outsider, the righteous, the perfect, and by sitting with them, including them, what the, he was doing, the whole church was planted. 
And as I was preparing for this, I saw there was a study done by someone somewhere. It says, our tables will become churches. Now listen, nothing can, nothing can replace the fellowship of believers in the local assembly. Let us not forsake meeting together, but Acts shows just that. Churches starting at people's tables. The dream of building a bigger table, that this table has constantly expands what we are doing, that when we are nearing what Jesus did, he died on the cross that we all may have life. He doesn't wish to see anyone perish. And what I want to do, I want to read this quote. Is uh, One author had passed away, and as describing her life and reflecting on what she had done, her friend wrote this. It was he, she who pulled up more chairs to the table and scooted over to make room who made us laugh and made us think, who was bold and courageous and kind, who would not be budged from her conviction that this gospel is good news for everyone, who moved to the margins because she knew that this is the center of God's story. And I don't know exactly what Jesus is doing when he sits with Levi and the other tax collectors. I don't know if he's moving from the center to the margins or making the margins the center, and I don't know if it really matters, but I do know this. Jesus saw a group of people from whom there was no good news and said, I have good news for you. My question as we move towards response, is your table available? Because too often, we have the space, we have all the resources we need, and we don't invite people. So how fixed is your circle? How that circle of influence that you have, how willing are you to, for Jesus to take it and mess with it? And how willing are you to find those who need the good news or are, is your table too fixed? It's not big enough for people. And so my question for those who are believers, how can you make room this week to invite someone to your table? Because of this table of Jesus that we, we get to have, there's always room and it's expanding. So is your table available? For those who have never put your faith in Christ, I know a Savior who changed me from who I was and I'm no longer th there. And he said, Pierce, there's a spot for you at my table if you put your, my faith in you, in me. And so I hope and pray if the Spirit is drawing you for whatever, for whatever you're walking through, there's the, there's the poor, the rich, whatever, whatever, regardless of where you're at, Jesus is calling, and he wants all to come to faith in him. So what I want to do in this time of response, if you please stand with me. I'm going to ask the band to come on up, and we're going to go to a time of response. I want you to pray this week. Is there someone I can invite over? Because what I've come to found, find is everyone can cook. Not me, but everyone else can cook. And opening up your home is such a blessing. And so I pray this week that you can know people you can invite over. You can invite someone this week who needs to have lunch. You can invite someone who needs to hear the gospel because you have been changed and your life will never be the same because Jesus said, I have a spot for you. So this week I pray that you be charged with the gospel. Invite someone over. And if the spirit is moving, come talk with us. Let us pray with you. Allow us to be changed by the gospel. And the good news is it's for everyone.
Let's pray. God, we love you, and thank you for this time just to meet together. Father, I'm grateful that you reached out for the outsiders, because that's us. Everyone in this room has all fallen short of the glory of God, and no one can come to you except through your son. We all at one time were outsiders. Let us not dwell on the past, but allow us to look back to say, I was there, but I am no longer there anymore by the power and grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. God, we know you move. Spirit, work in this place. And allow us as believers to reflect on all the reasons you've been good to us. And since we have this good news, why wouldn't we share it with the world? God, empower us, embolden us. We love you. Amen.